Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, well, this morning I'm going to start with an old saying that everybody knows, diamonds are forever. Diamonds are forever. Well, of course, even as I say that to you, we all know that that's not really true. It's a saying, we all sort of trot it out, but we know that diamonds can be destroyed. Uh, they certainly can be lost accidentally. Um, but here's the focus for this morning. Uh, can we say that Christians are forever? Diamonds aren't forever, even though we say so. There's not very much I can think of in this world that is forever. What about Christians? Can we say that Christians are forever? Well, we're four weeks into this uh, series, this teaching series, uh, exploring how we experience uh, God's sovereign power and salvation. And this morning we asked that particular question. Um, am I, are you as a Christian, absolutely certain that from this point you will make it home to heaven? It's a big question, isn't it? And a lot hangs on it. But it gets worse because, you see, if you're going to answer that question, you should bear in mind that diamonds aren't forever, even though we say they are. And then make it more personal. Uh, I want you to answer that question thinking about your daily failures and sin, even as you sit here and say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Uh, the awful thoughts. 
just restricted to this week, if you would like, the awful thought. Um, some of which you actually enjoyed. Uh, the awful things you've said or done uh, to family, friends, work colleagues. And again, some of which you're not even sorry for. And then we've got to add into that that knowing that God knows all these things about us. We ask the question, can we be certain, can you be certain that as a Christian you will last the distance? That, that ultimately you will get to be home in heaven with Jesus forever? Can you be sure that God will not give up on you. Because every one of us, even as Christians, would have to say, man, there's a lot, well, I'm not sure how to put it, there's a lot to give up on, there's a lot of reasons to give up on us. Now add into the mix something else. Add into the mix all those memories of people, and we all know people, who once presented as keen Christians, but who now totally reject the gospel. From the high-profile Christians that we all know of uh, to the people that we've sat shoulder to shoulder with in churches over the years. People we've prayed with. People we've read the Bible with. Perhaps even people who've taught you in the past. Is it possible that I could be safe in the kingdom of Jesus today and yet be lost or rejected tomorrow. Every one of those questions is just confronting, aren't they? Put it positively, could it really be true that I could say this morning, encourage you to hear this morning and believe this morning, that once a Christian, always a Christian. Well, I want to say, uh, and if you need to sleep for the rest of the time, that's fine, but just hear this next two sentences. The answer is really simple, and it's beautiful, and it's yes. We considered this last Sunday, uh, John chapter 10 that Jesus died for his sheep. He died for his sheep individually, and he died for his sheep particularly to restore each of his sheep to relationship to God. And in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus promises that not one of his died-for sheep will be lost. Not one will be snatched out of my hand. And I presume that also means that not one will be accidentally dropped out of his hand or that one will be accidentally lost out of his hand, or that one will accidentally jump out of his hand quite willfully. The point from John chapter 10, and we want to reinforce it today from Romans 8, the point is that God actually intends us, actually intends us to feel and be safe and secure in Christ, knowing that nothing and nobody will stop us from enjoying the eternal life he died to secure for us.
In other words, God's salvation comes with an absolute guarantee. Well, hang on a minute, you say. <laughs> I'm very wary of guarantees these days. We all know, we've all been caught with guarantees that seem to offer one thing, but then when you most need it, you find in the small print that it's not actually guaranteed at all. Even though that's been your thought, this product is guaranteed. Failsafe. But the guarantee that Christians will make it to heaven is God's guarantee. Altogether a different category of guarantee. No hidden fine print. We can take it at face value. God says, having died for you, I will make sure you make it all the way home to heaven. That is my intent. Not just to die for you and then sort of leave you to your own devices. No, I'm going to die for you, and then I will follow through on that, make sure you get home to heaven to enjoy that eternal life in all its fullness, for which I died for you. So God guarantees that Christians will, and there's twin words here, matching words, paired words. God guarantees that Christians will persevere all the way to heaven, finally being with Jesus, finally being like Jesus, why will we persevere? Because God promises he will preserve us. There's a, the paired words. We persevere because God preserves. Two sides, one coin. God on his side preserves, which guarantees that I, on my side as a Christian, will persevere. Persevere in faith and trust in Jesus until I'm home and secure in heaven itself, enjoying all its blessings. And let's, let's explore that in Romans chapter 8. That's our purpose this morning. And the first heading, and, and the, the biggest heading, I think, is that God always finishes what he starts. When our uh, first two children were young and I was in Sydney, I... I suppose like lots of dads had this idea of building this wonderful doll's house for my children. And I drew up the plans as I am a bit OCD, had it all drawn up to scale and went to my workshop as it was called then, a bit of a, an overstatement for what I had, a shed. Um, and I stepped to work to build this doll's house. I ended up with a doll's house for the kids, but it looked nothing like the drawing. At every step of the way, I had to cut corners because I didn't have the skills or the ability to do the drawing that I drawed. Drew. Sort out the English for yourselves. I'm Irish. That's my, my, my uh, get out of jail and <laughs> take it every week. Um, yeah, I just couldn't do it. The kids end up with a doll's house, but nothing like uh, what I'd hoped they'd have or what I'd led them to believe they would have. So there's utter disappointment all around. God always finishes what he starts. Concept plan of salvation, delivered in full. 
We find that in Romans chapter 8 very clearly. The context of these verses is the whole of Romans chapter 8. I don't have time to work through the first um, 27 verses. I'm just going to summarize them really quickly. But I'd encourage you to go and read them for yourself as a whole unit, the whole of Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 is all God begins with, with uh, objective and subjective assurance for us as, as Christians. Chapter 1, of, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a big comprehensive statement, isn't it? In Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Verses 2 through to 8, then uh, Paul spells out that, that the evidence of that, being in Christ, is changed attitudes, changed desires that make us want to do the things of God where previously, before we were converted, we had no interest in the things of God. And verses 9 through to 17, we're told then that God actually puts his spirit into us. And the spirit's job particularly, and remember, Father, Son, and Spirit are together in this work of salvation. The Father intends Jesus accomplish that in redemption. And now the spirit's making it work in our hearts as he calls us and reassures us that we are children and gives us the confidence to come before God, addressing him in the most intimate of ways, Abba, Father, Daddy. Convincing us that we're heirs together with Christ so that objectively and subjectively we feel secure, we feel safe. But then we might say, well, that's all very fine. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you in as much as we become Christians, and, and that's true. We have God's grace and this reassurance when we become Christians. But, but between here and now and heaven, there's so many things can go wrong. Life is such a struggle. Daily I see my failure in that struggle, my inconsistency in that struggle. Well, what about that? Will I get tripped up, get lost along the way? Well, verses 18 to 27 starts answering that question. And again, I don't have time to get into all the details of it, but verse 18 to 27 is really saying this. Look, God's intent is not just that you be redeemed or saved, but his intent ultimately for you is glory. Freedom and glory are the two words that dominate in those verses, 18 to 27. In the midst of our daily struggle, in the midst of our daily groaning, that's the language of those verses, as a consequence of sin, there is certainty. There is certainty we will make it to the end, make it to heaven, because God's end point for us is the salvation of his world. And the end point he intends for his people is glory, that is, to be home with them in heaven, to be with him and to be like him, to be the image bearers he always intended us to be. Freedom from sin, freedom to be the image bearers, as I say, he intended us to be, which is glory. And Paul then gives us the details of the basis for his confidence in verses 28, 29, 30. 
uh, which was read to us this morning by Simon. We'll just pick it up again. And I want you to think of it as a as God's salvation purpose, as a five-stage building plan, a building project, as I read through these verses again. So verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our salvation is a step through process, a five-stage building project planned and carefully managed by God to completion. See, again, the last word is glorified. First word is God set his love and says, determined that there would be people to be saved. So here's another really important sentence this morning, if you're still with me. Romans 8, 28 to 30 says, It is not the strength of my commitment or your commitment to God, which is critical in this question of will we get home to heaven. It's the strength of God's commitment to you and to me that's critical. That's what gives us confidence. If it resided in, in, in myself, in my commitment to God, then I'm done for. Because that comes and goes. It's never what I wanted to be, but it comes and goes even, even within that. That's about God's commitment to me. It's about God's commitment to you in salvation that gives you your place of safety and security and enjoyment. Now, their problem is that we can't see God's plan. We can't see the building site, which is our lives, in the way that God can see it. Our engagement in our lives is, is momentary, it's, it, and it feels chaotic. It feels pointless. It feels confused at times, doesn't it? That's generally how we feel, I think. But in truth, what we're told here is that every single event in our lives that happens, from our perspective, might be chaotic and, and, and all bits and pieces, but every single event in our lives is one more step closer to that final re uh, renovation being completed, which is called here glorification or being in heaven with Christ, being like him. One step closer to renovation, one step closer to glory. And that's the picture here. God is with us in the mess of life. At every point, at every step of the way, Surely, but slowly, but surely renovating us into a beautiful structure. And that beautiful structure has designed and built and kept by God, stamped on it. Verses 31 and 32. 
we just keep piling these assurances on top of assurances. Uh, if God is for us, look at verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? So Paul's taking a pause here in the argument, and he's just reflecting on what, what he's, he's just listed in this piling up of, of assurances. And he said, well, well, okay, so what are we going to say now? How does the rubber meet the road in all this? And he says, well, if God is for us, then who, who can be against us? That's his conclusion. If God is for us, then the deal's done. Given that God has guaranteed his people freedom and glory, verses uh, 17 through to 27 again, who could possibly countermand that is Paul's argument here. But who's going to take God on and say, well, actually, uh, God, no, you're wrong. See, God's faithfulness to his people is beyond question. He's done the hard work. He's put in the hard yards of loving those who are so unlovely. Romans 28 to 30 again. He's put in the even huge cost of having sacrificed his son to redeem us, to save us, to bring us back into relationship with himself. He's done the impossibly human task. He's done it miraculously of calling us to life when we are dead towards him, dead in sin. He's put a spirit within us to renew us on a day-by-day -day basis. And Paul's are piling all that up on one side and said, well, I mean, given that God's done all that and given his commitment to see his home to glory, then it's inconceivable that having done all the hard work back here, that God would hold back anything we need to get home to heaven. I've used the illustration before, I'll use it again. It's, it's a picture here of a, of a father, uh, not my father, but a father who, who, who's bought him, his child an $800,000 Ferrari. And it's inconceivable a father who's done that would say, now listen, uh, buddy, there's no petrol in the tank and I'm not going to give you another $80 for a tank of petrol. It just doesn't sit together, does it? Having done the hard work, then the tank of petrol's nothing. Neither will our Heavenly Father, having outlaid so much to make us his children, hold back anything required to bring us home to heaven. Keep going, verses 33 through to 39. God's love for his people will never be spoiled. Paul's anticipating all our arguments, humanly speaking. And this is one I think we resonate very easily with. See, when you think of marriage, most marriages come to grief. Sorry, most marriages that come to grief. Sorry, I should, should probably out. Most marriages that come to grief do so over a long period of time. Commitment gets eroded over a long period of time. 
And it happens one hurt, one disappointment, one upset at a time. Until in the end, abandonment is the outcome. Now the question in each of our minds, I think, when we talk about God's love is, is could God's love be spoiled like that? After all, we think, well, you know, every day, hundreds of times a day, God's absorbing hurts and disappointments and inconsistencies from me. Sometimes just plain awfulness from me. Could his love be worn down to the point that he says, right, that's it. I've had enough. And just cut me loose. Well, no, says Paul here to his, in these verses. God's love is total and unconditional. And again, he digs into it. In what sense is God's love total and unconditional? Well, look at verses three and verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now that's legal courtroom language. We fear that in all the sins that we've committed, we fear that somewhere or other God's missed one and that it can be brought back and used against us. That God might be caught out and embarrassed because he himself didn't quite figure or, or, or didn't quite deal with something justly. No, says Paul, it's inconceivable. God is just. God has justified his people. That is, every sin, past, present, and future, in each of his died for sheep has been dealt with and dealt with fully and completely. So it's impossible, inconceivable, that there could be any charge ever brought against one of God's died-for sheep. The Lord didn't cut any corners. He didn't engage in any cover-up. Who will lay any charge to God's elect? Not even our own sin can spoil God's love for us. Because each sin, even the ones we haven't committed yet, have been paid for by the Lord Jesus in his death. And even more reassuring, we found in 1 John chapter 2, we looked at that verse last week. Jesus is in heaven, constantly reminding the Father of that fact. Father, when you look at your sheep and you see them failing and inconsistent, remember, Father, I have died for every one of their sins, past, present, and future. They have a clean sheet. They keep a clean sheet. Every one of them, says Jesus to the Father, has been made acceptable by his death on our behalf. Verses 35 through to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We ask, we say, well, there's lots of things to be fearful of. There's lots of things that can happen to us in life. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, not even in all of these things. Sorry, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so on. No person, no circumstance, no thing in the entire universe could separate us from God's love. And that's a huge, huge promise to us when we consider there's so many times in life when we will or have faced tough situations, when we will suffer. Sometimes it's our own making. Sometimes it's through no fault of our own. In, in that, neither of those situations do we need to fear missing out in heaven because we fail to persevere. It's as if Paul said, look, think of the worst form of torture that a person, a Christian, has ever endured. Uh, think of the most uh, powerful spiritual forces of evil in the universe. Think of whatever you can think of, says Paul, and I can tell you that none of those things will overpower or erode God's love for us or God's commitment to us. In fact, the quotation from the Old Testament there, in fact, these things will be part of the renovation pro pro project. They'll be the context in which God's love for you will thrive. In the midst of the awfulness of life, we will experience and see a display of God's love that in turn will lead us to conquer over all of those circumstances of life. And my friends, the same promise is made repeatedly across Scripture. Uh, I urge you to read the, the, the cover article on the front of the bulletin and, and check out some of the references to that wonderful phrase, that wonderful description of God, the keeper of Israel, the keeping power of God. It's right across Scripture. It's a delightful term. The keeper of his people. But I just want to zoom in on, on one of many passages, and I want you to turn with me now to Philippians chapter 1, um, just to touch down very, very briefly, just to see how this works in, in one passage. And it could be repeated, as I say, over many, many passages. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul is so thankful uh, for the Christians at Philippi. He's so thankful in his prayers for them every day. Why? Verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We come full circle. God finishes what he starts. Always. The renovation already in those verses, uh, already so evident in changed attitudes and desires, will be completed in Christ. And then if you jump over to chapter 2 uh, of Philippians, verses 12 and 13, Paul then jumps very practically from that point of assurance 
to a point of challenge and exhortation and encouragement. When he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have already obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's Paul's point there? He's just saying, look, because you're secure and safe in Christ, then press ahead confidently in the struggle to live daily to reflect and express the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, uh, 5. The mind of Christ that you already have in you in the Holy Spirit. Just be confident to press on in the struggle each day to express the mind of Christ, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to use language of Romans again. Why does he urge them so confidently to press ahead when we know the struggle of life is so hard on a daily basis? Well, verse 12 and 13, because he knows that our desires and God's desires are actually working to the same end. They complement each other. As we struggle to be like Christ, to be faithful, to give expression to the mind of Christ that we have in us, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing within us. The two dovetail. And we can be confident in that struggle. And that leads me then to just a final couple of sum-up points. How, how do we respond to this twin truth of God's preservation and our perseverance? Well, two things I just want to touch on very carefully, very, very briefly here. Firstly, we, we, we need to be careful as, as we think about this. Because perseverance does not mean that every person who says they're a Christian, who, who goes to church, who's been baptized, will go to heaven no matter what they say or how they live. Perseverance isn't teaching that. The truth has to be applied in the context of Romans 8, and especially verses 28 to 30. And here it is, if you're in Christ. Well, you say, well, what's the evidence of that? Well, that's where Romans 8, I've already sort of covered that. The evidence of that is changed desires and attitudes that change the whole orientation or focus of your living. So if you're a person who now longs to serve Jesus, who longs to, to be uh, uh, in obedience to Jesus, then you can be sure that this truth is for you and that you will, be, you will persevere. And again, perseverance does not mean you'll be free from sin. It doesn't mean you'll be free from temptation. It doesn't mean you'll be free from a tough life. This is not the promise of, of, of roses and, and beer and, and, and skittles. Far from it. Scripture is full of examples of God's people taking big falls. You know it in your own life. I know it in my life. There are times when we're really warm and excited in our service of Christ. And there are times when we're decidedly cold. There are times when we just lose the plot altogether for a period of time. But the promise of Scripture is 
that God will ensure we never fall absolutely. We never fall completely. He will never abandon us. Yes, we will continue to, to sin and fail daily. As I've said before, we may even trip up seriously. But the person who is truly in Christ will sooner or later be brought back, disciplined and renewed by the Lord's Spirit working in us, but never abandoned. God's promise is that a believer will persevere in faith because God will preserve the faith, their faith, and shield them to salvation. My final comment then is that as well as being careful, we can also be confident. We can be confident knowing we are safe and secure. And this is a very simple point and yet a very, very hard one to grasp. When we live with spiritual uncertainty, almost certainly we'll be debilitated, crippled, unable to press ahead in the service of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because we're always consumed with worry about our position, our state before God. A proper understanding of this truth I've been speaking of this morning, that Christians are forever, will free us to be confident servants of the Lord. And it works like this. If we're confident that the big business of life is already secure, that is our relationship with God and our eternal destiny, if those things are already secure, then we can get on with giving expression to that which we are in Christ. We can get on with the task of, of persevering, struggling in the daily task of living for the Lord, of speaking the gospel, knowing that on a daily basis we will mess up and struggle and sin. Many Christians have such black thoughts and live with paralyzing guilt and struggle against persistent and awful sins. Yet rarely do we come clean with each other and seek each other out to help one another in our struggles. Now, why is that, do you think? Why do we so often pretend we're one thing when we're struggling at a different point? Why do we want to appear to be one thing when we're something different in practice? Well, I think the answer is because we think these struggles reflect our state of salvation. And so we have to look good on the outside because we're finding our security, not in God's commitment to us, but in our performance toward God. And that leaves us not much alternative but to pretend. I can't speak honestly about my struggles because it might appear to others that I'm not a Christian. But friends, once we know we're safe and secure in Christ because of his commitment to us, then we can be honest with one another. We can be serious and helping one another in the struggle to be more like Christ, to be that which we want to be. We can own our sins. Friends, Christians are forever. 
the life you have in Christ, by Christ's words, and this is, comes back to something really, really simple, and you think, well, what has the last 30 minutes been about? It comes back to something really, really simple. Christ says, I give you eternal life. The word eternal, by definition, means forever. Abundant life forever. You will come into glory. You will come into the fullness of salvation because the Lord is keeping you for your salvation. Keeping your salvation for you. And you will persevere into it. And you will know glory. And you will know freedom. This truth, my friends, is a truth to live by. It's a truth to be joyful in. And it's a truth that ought to just cause us to overflow in such profound thanksgiving that my salvation from first to last is about God's commitment to me. Let me pray. Lord, forgive us for not taking the time to understand the, the depth of this teaching so that, Lord, practically we, we live as though our eternal security is dependent on our performance. Lord, we know the guilt that we harbor within ourselves. And we allow that guilt, Lord, to make us feel insecure and unsafe and, and to leave us full of anxiety and fear. Lord, help us to see you, to see what you've done for us, to see what you continue to do in us, to see your love that has promised never to abandon us, never to be eroded, never to fade. But your intention in your love is to bring us into perfect freedom and glory. Help us to rejoice in that, even as we launch ourselves into the, the struggle of daily living to please you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.